The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. So I've been um, moving my space, cleaning bookshelves and thinning, which is very hard. Um, but you know how you uh, start cleaning and you're thinning your bookshelves and then you find one you haven't seen for a while and you end up sitting on the floor and looking at it. Um, this was the case with um, a book I got from Senjin, who was a one of my monastic sisters that passed away a while ago now um, by Rabadranath Tagore. And it's called Playthings. Child, how happy you are sitting in the dust, playing with a broken twig all the morning. I smile at your play with that little bit of broken twig. I am busy with my accounts, adding up figures by the hour. Perhaps you glance at me and think, what a stupid game to spoil your morning with. Child, I have forgotten the art of being absorbed in sticks and mud pies. I seek out costly playthings and gather lumps of gold and silver. With whatever you find, you create your glad games. I spend both my time and my strength over things I can never obtain. In my frail canoe, I struggle to cross the sea of desire and forget that I, too, am playing a game. So it just struck me as I was thinking at the same time um, what I might share with you, and it is about this joyful effort in practice. Um, when explaining meditation, um, the Buddha often drew analogies to artists, people who, who um, with skills of artists, carpenters, musicians, archers and cooks. He said, finding the right level of effort, he said, is like a musician's tuning of a lute, reading the mind's needs in the moment to be gladdened, steadied, or inspired is like a palace cook's ability to read and please the tastes of those they serve. And... Um, all of these analogies, in a way, I think, point to zazen being a kind of skill that also needs to be um, developed and needs to be and is enjoyable in the same way that practicing any other rewarding skill can be. After all, Dogen says zazen is the gate of ease and joy. And we might say... Where does that come from? But he's, he's showing us something and asking us, I think, a, a question we can ask ourselves about how we practice, how we approach practice. 
And the Buddha said this much to his son, Rahula. When you see that you've acted, spoken, or thought in a skillful way, conducive to happiness, while causing no harm to yourself or others, take joy in that fact and keep on that road of training. Of course, saying that zazen is enjoyable doesn't mean that it will always be easy or pleasant. As I said in the beginning, that's not what we're saying. We all might know that it requires, as we are attest to today, discipline to sit with long, unpleasant stretches of feelings and emotions. Seeing the tangle in the mind is um, difficult. And if we approach difficulties with enthusiasm that an artist approaches challenges in their work, the discipline becomes enjoyable. So-called problems are solved or perhaps dissolved, I think is a better way of looking at it, through our own ingenuity. And the mind is energized for even greater challenges, you'll find, at least I do. A joyful attitude is useful, and it's a strong antidote when we are bringing on more pessimistic, negative attitudes, which tends to fall into two extremes. So on one hand, we might have the belief that zazen is, a, is just a series of dull and dreary exercises that we have to do, we should do, allowing no room for imagination and inquiry, right? That this is what we're supposed to do. And there's no room for that, what I was telling you, that experimentation, that imagination, that inquiry, as we do have a practice at the same time, but how we work with that, you know, simply uh, grit it, bite down, grit it, grit your teeth, and at the end of the long haul, somehow our mind will be processed into an awakened mind. Not. (laughs) Maybe, but ouch. And then on the other hand, we may have the belief that the effort is counterproductive to happiness. So zazen zazen should involve no exertion. Simply accept things as they are. And don't be foolish to demand that they can get any better. And relax into the moment. So while it's true that repetition and relaxation can bring results in zazen, When either is pursued to the exclusion of the other, it leads to a dead end. So if we're just trying to um, repeat and get rote, and this is just, you know, haul it out, (laughs) grit your teeth, or if we're just like, don't exert, just relax, just accept things as they are, and just, you know, um, what is it? Uh, relax into the moment, right? 
If, though, we can integrate them both into the larger skill of learning how to apply whatever level of effort the practice requires at any given moment, that can take us to great depths. Yeah. This larger skill requires um, strong powers of mindfulness, uh, concentration, discernment, sticking with it, and we can experience Buddha's ultimate aim in teaching meditation, which I mentioned this morning, nirvana, a happiness totally unconditioned, a happiness that no one can take from us, no conditions can take from us. That's nirvana, with no hindrance in the mind, no hindrance, therefore no fear, far beyond deluded thoughts. This is nirvana. I was, um, somebody else wrote, what is the nature of the liberated mind? Peace. Right here in our ordinary life to recognize. Nirvana, as it's called, has entered the popular culture. I have eaten in a restaurant called Nirvana, tested perfume at my friends, Samsara and Nirvana. I have seen a banner headline for United Airlines once on Yahoo that read, Daily Departures to Nirvana. Bye now. Perhaps we can call it the ultimate cool. When the mental fires of greed, anger, and delusion are put out, extinguished, we open to the ineffable, indescribable, unknowable, conceptual mind and touch these aspects of aliveness. So we might as well live and we might as well love. You might as well love. You might as well love. The ultimate cool. (laughs) I like that. So this crossover to the other shore from delusion to um, being undiluted, being seeing things as they are, they call it gate, gate is what we chant, crossover, crossover from delusion to awakening can be experienced like that. And it's probably sometimes you, that's happened to you where you just go like, oh, and it just... Something just opens up. It's like, oh, we just crossed like that. And I love that Buddha said um, he, he's never seen anything that moves faster than the mind. That's the fastest thing he's ever seen is our mind, how fast it can change. Pretty remarkable. So if we regard everything, as my teacher used to say, the good, the bad, and the ugly... Oh, sorry, skipped over here. So it's in, let's see. Yeah, so it's an inspiring thing as this child to um, a key to maintaining our inspiration and day-to-day practice of zazen to approach it as play. Not a play thing, but as, as play 
like sometimes we call it serious play, (laughs) a happy opportunity to practice skills, to raise questions, experiment, and explore how to be free from thoughts that stress us out and make us suffer, that we play in that and we experiment a way to soothe the mind, pleasure the mind. Like the poem says, child, how happy you are sitting in the dust. Well, we're sitting in the dust. There's things going on that are going on. We're sitting in the dust. Is our happiness gone? It doesn't mean that there's a lot of grief and dread and fears, but we can also be happy to be alive. It's unconditioned that we're with each other, that we're, we don't know, that we're going to just take this as far as we can with our happiness, whatever's happening. We're remembering this beautiful art of being absorbed. Zazen is our sticks and mud pies. And this is precisely how the Buddha taught meditation. Instead of formulating a cut-and-dried method, he trained his students on developing our personal qualities, two in particular, honesty and patience. Honesty and patience. Because that's needed. Honesty and patience are needed to make trustworthy observations about what's going on with us, inner and outer. And that is when he would teach his meditation techniques. He didn't spell everything out. He raised questions and suggested areas for exploration in hopes that his questions would capture the student's imagination. Doesn't he? (laughs) Capture our imagination so that we'd develop discernment and gain insights of our own. And I think that's a way we can, whatever we know, wherever we're at, we can do for others too. Just, huh, interesting. Like when someone says something that, really offends, or you feel a reaction. Huh, isn't that fascinating? (laughs) When instead of blowing up, we just go, interesting, because leave them with their thoughts. Don't correct. Just just let them be their, it's their business. No, I don't want you to say that. That's wrong. You should think like this. No, let them have their, huh, and ask a question much more open and, and gives them a chance to explore a little further. We are in a moment of sensory awareness and tactile exploration. All the senses are open. So it's a very happy opportunity to practice practical skills, to raise questions, experiment, explore, Sounds like art practice, which is the highest form of living. 
our life is art. It is our breath into expression. We call it life. There's no such thing as life. There's just movement. So when Buddha taught Rahula, his son, how to meditate, he started with patience. Meditate, he said, so that your mind is like the earth. Disgusting things get thrown on the earth, but the earth isn't horrified by them. When you make your mind like the earth, neither agreeable nor disagreeable, sensory impressions will take charge of it. Buddha wasn't telling Rahula to become a passive clod of dirt. He was teaching Rahula to be grounded, to develop powers of endurance, so that he'd be able to observe both pleasant and painful events in his body and mind without becoming engrossed in the pleasure or blown away by our pain. That's what he was teaching his son. This is what patience is for. It helps us to sit with things until we understand them well enough to respond to them skillfully. That's why we need patience. The character I spoke about it is an arrow. This is the character, an arrow pointing to your heart and you're in a corner. That's patience. (sighs) And then to develop honesty in meditation. The Buddha taught Rahula a further practice. Look at the inconstancy, the changeability of events in body and mind. Look at the inconstancy. Look how we change from moment to moment. Look at that. Right? So that you can, so that you don't develop a sense of I am around them. Here, Buddha was teaching Rahula and building on something that he learned when he was seven years old. To look at your actions, and before you do them, while you're doing them, and after they're done, and if you see that you've acted unskillfully and caused harm, resolve not to repeat the mistake. Then talk it over with someone you respect. I thought that last line was interesting. It caught me. And I wondered, hearing that, after you go through that process, uh, he's telling his son, like, look at what you did, you know, while you're, look at your actions before you do them, while you're doing them, after they're done, and see that you've acted, if you've acted unskillfully and caused harm, resolve not to repeat it, then talk it over with someone you respect. I thought that was interesting why he would say that. And how many, I thought to myself, have the good fortune to talk it over with someone we respect. (laughs) For Rahula and for all of us here now, we can receive the Buddha's training to Rahula to be honest and apply it. Be honest with ourself, with oneself, be honest with others. 
And the key to um, this honesty, perhaps, is to treat our actions as experiments. So we can see. We're experimenting. This being, that becomes. That being, this becomes. What's it like? What's it bringing? This attitude is essential for developing honesty in zazen as well. So, if we regard everything, as my teacher would say, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that arises in zazen as the sort of person we are, it will be hard to observe anything honestly, because off we go, right? How bad we are. And then we just spend the whole period how bad we are. The worst. Everyone else sits so still. Everyone else is perfect and upright. And I'm like a mess over here all by myself. Or we talk about the other side. God, I'm, I'm really getting it. I'm like, I think I'm ready to turn in my cushion. <laughs> um, I see so clearly it's just amazing. Yeah. So pumping up putting down, pride, sinking low, unworthiness, right? To simply see events as events, the Buddha said, not as signs of the innate Buddhaness or badness of who we are. Nothing's innate. (laughs) Then we can observe these events honestly, because when we go off like that, when we start getting into I'm the worst and I can't, It's like we can't just simply see it as an event that's happening inside of us. But eventually we might come back that we can observe it honestly to see where it might have come from and where it could lead. Honesty, together with patience, puts us in a better position to practice zazen and explore our mind, helps our efforts to be joyful, playful, because we're experimenting, we're learning, teaching ourselves, and enjoying the effort, hopefully without judgment. The judge and the critic, you know, that's the life of the party, isn't it? And the primary technique, of course, the Buddha taught Rahula is the theme that Buddha taught more than any other, which is how we begin in Zen training, is keeping the breath in mind. That's how we start off, keeping the breath in mind. And he praised it highly, and he said it can take us all the way to clear knowledge and release, realize ourself, who we are. Because in that the sutra, the Anapanasati Sutra, is the sutra of awareness um, of I am breathing in, I am breathing out. I am taking a long breath, I am breathing out a long breath, I am breathing in a short breath, I am breathing out a short breath. And he gives us 16 steps. The first one has to do with the breath, which is the body. And then he goes into feeling, and then he goes into mental formations, and then dharmas. That's the Satipatthana Sutra, the four foundations of mindfulness. 
which lead to the eight awarenesses uh, of things we can cultivate and develop, which leads to our freedom. The Four Noble Truths are in there as well. So he praised it highly. He says, we can think of the breath as our home, as a meditator. That's our home, our home base. And each of us may go out on other excursions to other areas. I have other practices. Sometimes I go back to breath. And I have other practices, metta. Uh, Depends what medicine I need, what's happening. But we don't want to jump around too much in the beginning because we want to just calm down and, and be with our breath. Start there. So there are other themes and ways to work with specific problems or situations that come up in the mind that we have to deal with. But it's good to have the breath as a home base and a place to come back to. Even in koan study, you study a koan, it's a written interaction pointing to the nature of reality, the non-dual, and how it splits up, perhaps. And then once you have the dialogue, you just go back to your breath. You just feel the whole situation in your being from the inside, what that reality is. So you can come into it live, with live words, with live experience. Sometimes it resonates, sometimes it doesn't. We have to dig a little deeper. Sometimes we fall back on knowing or ordinary thinking. Anapada, anapana from the anapasanati means breathe in, breathe out, in breath, out breath. And sati, sati means mindfulness or present moment awareness that simply notices what is happening without interfering in any way. That's mindfulness. We don't interfere without adding or subtracting anything to or from experience. So it's bare awareness. So anipasanati means mindfulness while breathing in and out. And this uh, says, mindfulness is a term used a lot in the sutra. This extraordinary capacity we have as humans, mindfulness can only happen in the present. We can be mindful of a past memory, but that's not, that, that's, it can only happen in the present. It's unbiased, not for or against anything. It's like a mirror. It doesn't judge what it reflects, and it has no other goal than seeing itself. It doesn't try to add to what's happening or subtract or improve in any way. It's not detached, so it's not like a person on a hill with binoculars, right, observing. No, it's not standing far from our experience. It is a form of participating fully, living our lives awake in the midst of it, 
and of course not limited to, limited to this meditation hall by any means. We, we walk around with mindfulness to practice. So we can use it on a very simple process like breathing or something really highly charged and unpleasant. Unpleasant emotions, fears, mindfulness of loneliness. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath is like a super powerful teaching. (laughs) Take a deep breath. And eventually it becomes just a way of living. And this takes time. It takes time to develop. You're doing it. It takes time though, so don't, don't fret. Have patience. Takes time. We have some well-worn patterns in our head, in our mind. So it takes it takes some time. We can simply no, begin noticing the breath, imagining the breath not as air coming in and out of the lungs, but as an energy flow through the body, throughout the body that draws air in and out. And where do you feel that energy flow? We can feel it flowing in and out the back of our neck, in our feet and hands, along the nerves and the blood vessels, in our bones. We can feel it coming in and out of the pores of our skin. We can feel where it is blocked. How do you dissolve the blockages? Breathing through them around them, straight into them, see what works, play, experiment. If it's blocked, how do you dissolve it? How do you go in there with your breath to release? And as we experiment with the breath, we get to know our body in this way, because breath is body, it's entering the body. And we're gonna make some mistakes Sometimes I've given myself headaches, <laughs> forcing my breath too much. Or I got this notion somewhere early in practice that if I wasn't breathing deeply, I wasn't really doing it. <laughs> so I would be like nauseous, <laughs> trying to get like a deep breath. And I realized shallow is just fine. I just noticed it's a shallow breath. When I read that sutra, I was like, oh. It's a short breath. I don't have to have like a long breath. And maybe that short one is the long one. I'm studying. I'm playing. I'm experiencing. But we get into this thing with our education of like, am I doing it? I mean, there is a right in some ways, but sometimes we get too, too bound there. So we're beginning to see the impact of the breath on the mind. And then we breathe in and out with a sense of refreshing fullness and a sense of ease. So here too, experiment both with the way you breathe and the way you conceive of the breath. Notice how these feelings and conceptions have an impact on the mind. 
and how we can calm that impact so the mind feels more at ease, most at ease. Then when the breath is calm and we've been refreshed by feelings of ease and stillness, we can really look at the mind itself. Once we calm down and they're at ease, we don't leave the breath, though. We just adjust our attention slightly so that we're watching the mind as it stays with the breath. Kind of like moving into what we might call shikantaza. Not letting go. No letting go. Just open awareness. So here the Buddha recommends three areas for experimentation. He says, notice how to gladden the mind when it needs gladdening, how to steady it when it needs steadying, and how to release it from its attachments and burdens when it's ready for release. So we can try exploring these skills off the cushion as well. How do you gladden the mind when you're sick? How do you steady the mind when you're dealing with a difficult person? So we can explore these skills that we have as practitioners. And what a piece of gold we have a difficult person because we get the pleasure of sharpening our skills. <laughs> so, like the beginning um, stages of concentration, we need to keep directing our thoughts, our self back to the breath. Counting is a beautiful anchor to see, acknowledge consciously and deliberately do that release, adjust, and make our whole being in connection with breath, our home base. And then eventually the mind will grow still. And we see how to make the mind one with the breath. And in that way, we release the mind into a more intense and refreshing state of ease. When we see how to bring them together, when we release the mind into a more intense and refreshing state of ease, making it one with the breath. And as we expand our skills in this way, the attentions that we've been using to shape our experience of body and mind become more and more transparent. And there's no need to control And this change in concentration, when we can actually see what's arising and we start to get wind like what we're playing with, what thoughts are, the movie reel we're watching, and we start to see that we can get a bit of disenchantment, as the Buddha says, dispassion, disenchantment for anything that we're trying to do to control or manipulate an experience we want to have, we can release that and just let it be what it is. 
that we can allow the intentions to cease. I want to do this. I want to get to that. If we can just let that go after a while. And luckily, the path doesn't save all the pleasures for the end. It just takes away that, oh my God, that, that idea of something we think we need to be in this. And places us right in the center of a series of intriguing challenges. And that in itself makes practice an um, interesting and a source of joy. But if we have that hunger, like it's got to be something else than what I'm doing, leading to something special, it comes, becomes a tangle because we never find it. It's like perfection, right? Like wanting to be perfect. What the hell is that? <laughs> what a tangle. Oh my God, that's so painful. I want to be perfect at this. That's hard because it's, it's just... What does that even look like? Tell me. Experiencing the full body of the breath in Zazen, we are sensitizing ourselves to an area of our awareness which is the deathless. And if we can rest there and trust, it will be revealed, not born not destroyed. That's what we studied. The deathless. Nothing born, nothing destroyed. Right? Anatta, no self. We can really start to see. If the, is that true? There really isn't one as we thought? Not born, not destroyed. So even though the path requires effort, It's an effort that keeps opening up new possibilities for happiness and well-being in the present moment. This dispassion is just the joy of having to be less involved with the machinations of mind. That's the dispassion. It's not, I don't care. It sounds awful, dispassion, or I'm not going to have passion. No, it's just less interested in the machinations of our mind and all that it does. And it develops not from a narrow or pessimistic attitude, but from the attitude of hope that there's a great depth to our being. We're not small and narrow. It opens that up. It opens that up tremendously. Just that little bit of space that develops, a lot of space. It says, the Buddha never asked anyone to adopt a world-negating or world-affirming frame of mind. He asks for a world-exploring attitude of mind, which we use the inner world of full-body breathing as a laboratory for exploring the harmless and clear-minded pleasures the world as a whole can provide. And practicing this need not be a joyless way. 
We learn skills to calm the body, to develop feelings of refreshment, fullness, ease. We learn how to calm the mind, to steady it, to gladden it, to release it from its burdens. This is like the disenchantment a child senses when they really get a simple game and feels ready for something more challenging. It's the attitude of a person who has matured, which we all know, right? (laughs) We don't mature by shrinking from the world, watching it passively or demanding that it entertain us. In my frail canoe, I struggle to cross the sea of desire and forget I am playing a game. I, too, am playing a game. We mature by exploring it, by expanding our range of usable skills through our serious, wise, joyful play. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.